0: Geekish Cast, Episode 70, The Sword and the Sorcerer, Meet the Pen and the Author. back at Geekish Cast. I'm your host Jeremy and I'm joined this week by Daniel Swenson, author of Orson and Burn. How are you doing, Daniel?
1: I'm doing great, Jeremy. Thank you. Well,
0: thank you for coming on. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to let me bother you on Facebook and get you an on. Oh,
1: absolutely. It's an honor.
0: Fantastic. Well, you know, let's um I kind of want to talk about you've got two books you've published and we're just going to hit them real quick cuz I'm interested in finding out some of your inspiration and the things you were into. Uh, that kind of set the stage for you to become a fantasy and sci-fi author. Okay. So your your first book that you published was a short story called Burn. Right. Um, and I believe it's available on Amazon. Yeah, it's
1: on Amazon, and it's also on Smashwords, and um, I think possibly Barnes and Noble. I haven't checked, and
0: I think it's on BNN, okay. too. Okay. Well, we'll uh, make sure we get the get links and everything in the show notes as we go. Sure. <clears throat> but what's kind of what is the, the basic gist behind your story? Burn.
1: Um, uh, it's a, just a short story about a, a young woman with paranormal powers. She's uh, she's got uh, pyrokinetic powers, and she's having a uh, she's an ex sort of an ex government agency. She worked for this government agency, and the whole story is a combination of her talking with her ex handler in a diner. Um, about whether or not they're going to try to get her back, and these flashbacks kind of explaining how she got to be where she was. Um, and people have compared it to uh, quite fairly to to Firestarter because that's kind of where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, because years ago, I read Firestarter many, many times as a kid, um, and as a young as a young man, I just really loved it. Early works of King in general. I've reread a lot of them. But I also saw the movie, and I believe the movie ends differently than the book in that you have Charlie, the main character, and her, I think her grandfather, or I, I forget who it is. And uh, after the big finale of Firestar, where Charlie goes berserk and kills everybody and blows up the government agency and sets everybody on fire they go walking like the New York Times building and they're like we're going to tell your story now Charlie just thought well what would that look like like what what would that what would that how would that even work you know I mean would would anyone take that seriously what would happen and so from that I kind of got this idea of what would happen once once a character like Charlie gets older you know does she kind of become disenfranchised does she have to kind of be on her own um, and that's kind of where I where I went from there And that's kind of how burn came to be.
0: And so that was your first work that you published. And yeah so that, is that that's really where you got bit with the okay, I'm gonna write a book and <clears throat> go forward with the writing thing then right? Yeah
1: I mean I have like a lot of authors, I have a you know a huge drawer full of unfinished books and semi-finished books. I mean I wrote probably, three or four finished novels before I finally decided on, on uh, pursuing Orison with, with and Nine Muse Press. Um, you know, but uh, Burn was my first foray into, cause after, uh, after Amazon decided that they were going to, you know, let people self publish, I decided, well, you know, I'll just dip a toe into these waters and see what happens. Um, and Burn, I felt was, it was really short, it was really polished. I kind of felt like I'd hit all of the high notes on it, and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll get a cover artist. I'll put a cover on it. I'll put it out there. I'll see what anybody thinks of it, and it got a lot of really strong responses, and so that's where I decided I was going to pursue, um, you know, being a published author a little more uh, aggressively.
0: All right. Let me. Um, so as somebody who is both self-publishing and published with a smaller press, mm-hmm. Um, do you think the the boon in self publishing is going to be helpful overall or harmful overall to uh, to publishers?
1: I think it's going to be helpful overall because I think I think right now, from everything that I've read in you know in the trade blogs and everything, I think uh, traditional publishing, though it still has a lot going for it, is kind of stuck in a bit of a rut. You know, it's sort of stuck in a bit of a marketing rut, and it's also just, I have so many stories from, and maybe you do too, I have so many stories from fellow authors, fellow writers who have gotten traditional publishing contracts, and they've been so happy and so excited, and then about a, you know, six months to a year onward, this terrible disillusionment sets in because they're not treated very well, and their work isn't treated very well, and if they're not, uh, if they don't really hit it out of the gate, they're forgotten about and they've got nothing. Uh and sometimes their work, even if it's great, isn't really given a chance. I mean I have one author, I won't I won't name them, but they they had a, a book come out that I thought was fantastic, but I thought really deserved to be put front and center, and it was shoved in the middle of an anthology and I thought treated very poorly and then it didn't do well and the the publisher just said, Well, you know, it didn't do well, so your fault.
0: Yeah. And I think we're seeing that with music and, I mean, just about everything overall. You know, what's kind of nice, and it's it's nice and it's difficult. The reason publishers have always been able to, you know, grab an author and kind of hold everything over their head is they had the budgets and they had the printing press. Yeah. So, you know, without marketing, you know, how are people going to find out about your book? That's where, you know, the Internet has been such a huge thing. Yeah, absolutely. But you still have to have a couple hundred bucks to throw at you know Facebook ads.
1: You do, yeah. I mean it does take money. I mean, and I was I was lamenting about that with another writer friend of mine about how, you know, if you don't have any kind of infrastructure, it, it's expensive to be a self published author. I mean, there's this this uh this concept, it's like, well I can just write something and dash it off and slap a cover on it for nothing and put it out there and and, and make money. In my experience, not really. You know, I mean, it takes a lot of work, especially if you well, want to turn out something of quality.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it's just like my wife, you know, wrote a book about, um, well, you know, I'm not, my wife wrote a book about oh, a part of our okay. life. And um, self-published it because she had an agent who literally did not touch her book for more than a year. Oh, jeez. Signed a contract, blah, blah, blah with the agent. Well, you know, last year I was writing my books. I didn't really deal with my clients. Okay, but she also didn't tell anybody. that <laughs> so after my wife ended that uh, relationship she just self published on amazon and yeah you can get sales but you know you're going to have 50 a hundred your first month 200 your second month 25 your third yeah and for people who aren't good at running a business or have not run, ran a business or for most artists <clears throat> who don't really have an interest in running a business it's a lot more difficult than just throwing a book together.
1: Yeah, I mean, you really can't. If you're a self-published or a small press author, you really can't uh, live the life of the literary recluse um, in the age of the internet. I mean, you'll just you'll you'll vanish beneath the waves without a trace. You know, you kind of have to keep putting yourself out there and and keep promoting yourself, at least in some rudimentary sense. Or, you know, you're kind
0: of a goner. Oh yeah. Well, and I've seen that with um, since I've started the podcast, the people that you know who have the people who have approached me about, hey, let me come on. We'll talk about our you know comic book or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Those guys are working Twitter and Facebook. They're working Twitter and Facebook five days a week, seven eight hours a day. Oh sure. I mean, they are they're pounding the pavement. I mean, the, the digital pounding the pavement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so wow. it's kind of interesting to me to see how people have. Really, you know, uh, they're a chief cook and bottle washer. You write a book, you either make your own cover or hire somebody, and then you go out and you sell the book to person by person as you go. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So then your next book was Orson or Orison. Orson, yeah. Yeah, and that one's a little more, um, I believe the term would be high fantasy.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I think it's more, more of a sword and sorcery feel with some high fantasy elements. Um, because it's kind of, the characters are kind of like down and out and they're struggling against an institution that's more powerful than themselves, which is kind of a hallmark of, uh, of sword and sorcery. And that's also got a strong sort of heist element to it, which I think is yes. which, which is also sword and sorcery. And there's in, instead of some kind of grand quest or uh, predestination or, or prophecy, there's none of that really in that book, which was very deliberate on my part. But, um, There's also, I wanted to add kind of the scope and uh, the breadth of high fantasy. Um, So, we were talking just a a minute ago about about traditional publishing versus small press. Um, What I really like about working with with Nine Muse and about being with a small press is that I can kind of hit that sort of in-between area, marketing-wise. I can say, all right, well, this is not exactly like every other sword and sorcery or every other high fantasy book out there. It's kind of a hybrid. It kind of hits these places in between, and I don't have to try to convince anyone to to, to buy it based on, you know, how well it fits into, uh, you know, a, a predetermined template. So
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, and that's one thing I think we've seen with uh, fantasy and sci-fi. They're, well, publishing is <clears throat> notoriously risk-averse at this point. Yeah, oh, terribly. And basically, if you haven't written the next Eye of the World series mm-hmm. or, you know, you're not the next uh, Shonara author. Yeah. Or, you know, you're not sitting on the next Star Trek uh, style book, people aren't going to look at you as seriously. Right. That's that's, and that's really unfortunate because. It is. There's a lot of great little stuff that got published back in the 70s and 80s that would never get looked at now.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, I know, I know so many authors who don't are not authors but readers who don't want any part of that. I mean I, I mean I, I know I've heard so many stories from readers who are like I don't want another big 10 book series of doorstops that I got to wait a decade and a half for it to be finished or maybe not at all, you know, I mean you know especially in the in the case of eye of the world, you know, the you know Robert Jordan unfortunately died before he could finish it and then Brandon Sanderson had to come in and wrap it up. I mean it just went on for so long that
0: oh, yeah. you know well. I started reading that I read the first book of that series I was 16 or 17 yeah yeah and I read the last one when I was forty <laughs> yeah that was and that was the year it was published
1: yeah and yeah. I just can't imagine I mean just as a reader I don't want any part of that and as an author it just sounds like a nightmare I just don't want to like commit to anything for that long to be honest
0: Let me, I'm, I'm gonna ask you a question as an author sure. Um, I, I now, I back in the nineties, a friend and I self published some comics, okay. and you know I know a few authors and comic book authors, and one of the things I've noticed with new writers is they have a tendency to write a twenty five book grand epic as their first, their first swing they really try to take. Oop, I got dog barking. <laughs> Um How, where do you come down on when you when you are looking at a story? Do you find that cutting things out? is helpful. I mean, kind of give me an idea real quick, because you wrote a short story, and then you wrote a novel, and even your novel is still only about 300 pages, so you you definitely showed some restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, so wh- what do you think about that tendency to try to write, you know, or shoot for trilogies and quadrologies initially?
1: Um, I mean, it really depends on the author. I mean, if that's the kind of thing you want as as a writer, obviously, I think you should go for it. And there are a lot of readers who really love that i mean i i talk to a lot of readers because i love knowing what readers are into and what they take away from an experience um and uh you know someone someone really close to me says you know i i like really long series i like really long you know slow burn kind of books because i like to lose myself and immerse myself in a world and so the longer the series the more in-depth the details the The more I can lose myself in it, the better it is for me. The more I like it. Um, but then I talk to so many other readers who are like, "Look, I'm on the train. I got 20 minutes that I can read. I don't want to forget everything that happened because this thing is 500 pages long. Just get me into the story. Get me something that I can digest in a day or two, so I can be entertained and just get to the point. Um, you know. So it's really about finding your target market and doing." something that you love in the meantime so i mean uh for me you know something about the length of orzen or a bit you know a bit longer because i'm working on the sequel now and the sequel's probably about a half again the size at least i think okay um that's the sweet spot for me um i don't want to write huge doorstops I don't want to write a 25 book ongoing epic with if, like, I don't ever want the words bridge book to cross my lips talking about my <laughs> own work. Um, you know, cause that's just not what I'm into. Well, I should, I should amend that. I'm occasionally into that sort of thing. I like, I like the, uh, Steven Erickson's Malazan series quite a bit. Um, but, like I like Glenn Cook's work more because it's a little bit more discreet. Like you can read each one of those novels and they all kind of stand on their own. Um, rather than having to go through the entire series, you know, beginning to end to get the to get the whole picture. Um, that's kind of what I like. Um okay. you know, kinda of what you were talking about with the uh you know, a lot of the books in the seventies, like uh the Darkover series, for instance. Um, some of the series that were kind of they were made up of you know individual novels that kind of had an, uh, a common world and they had a narrative that maybe threaded through all of them but they were um, they were self-contained
0: but the, yeah the story itself stood by itself yeah 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 that would make sense yeah I just I've just I'm always curious about that with new writers they always seem to always bite off a whole bunch and I'm just kind of curious where where other people who have actually done it kind of come sure out.
1: well <clears throat> excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I got to the end of Orzan and I was kind of on the fence as to whether or not I wanted to write another one because I feel, you know, you could you could read Orzan and be done with it, and you know that would be that. Um, you know, the ending is a little is a little open. It has a sort of sort of a promise. It has kind of the uh, the implication of more things to come, but it doesn't end on a cliffhanger. I don't think. Um, right. Which you know. Is was was intentional on my part, but then you know I I got the reviews and I got people talking to me and they're like please write more of this and I was like okay well I had some ideas so I'll write some more
0: <laughs> you know yeah there you go well that's you know one of the things that I do want to talk about is that um, it, my wife told me to follow you on Facebook so I've <laughs> okay and and recently over the last few months there was a day you posted a whole bunch of DVDs you received that day from your Amazon yes. And that whole list, I'm like, holy shit, I remember that movie. (laughs) Oh god! But you know what's kind of funny is that there were all those like early to mid '80s, yeah, like Hawk the Slayer. Yes, almost every movie on that list you had like ends with like you know the end question mark, (laughs) (laughs) right, right, and the villain laughs. You know that kind of proposed proposed sequel that we never got. Yeah. So um, I love all those. And what was on that? So you had Hawk the Slayer, I believe, was in there. Sword and Uh, Sword and the Sorcerer.
1: sorcerer. I'm. I don't remember verbatim, but I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess I probably had Beastmaster, uh, Rob. Star Crash, Battle Beyond the Stars, Crawl, uh, um, Warrior and the Sorceress, Deathstalker. Uh, oh boy, there's got There's one I always forget. Yeah, Barbarian Queen. Um, there's more. There's always more.
0: But it's it's all the stuff I grew up watching. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and it's it's that kind of brilliant because they're in the late seventies, early eighties. There was that Star Wars had just come out, mm-hmm. and everybody was going to make that next grand epic fantasy film. Oh yeah. And then when you got into the sword and sorcery or the the fantasy side of it, of course you had naked chicks everywhere too. So oh, for a totally. Eight nine, eight nine year old boy, you're like this movie has everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> what what more could I possibly want from grand cinema than this?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for me, it was, um, I mean, I didn't get to go to the theater a whole lot. For me, it was, uh, my parents would get HBO or Once in a Blue Moon, and sure. so they'd go to bed or they'd go out or something, and I, you know, because they had very different, they did not approve of my taste in movies or much of anything, and uh so that, you know, I'd wait for them to go to bed or go out to dinner or whatever they're going to do. And then I'd turn on HBO and I'd find, you know, Beastmaster. And so Beastmaster, Sword and the Sorcerer, and there are a couple other movies that I watched probably a dozen times apiece because they were always on. Oh, yeah. Because those early sort of wasteland days of HBO, there was not a lot going on. Well,
0: no, they know. got the cheapest movie they could. Yeah. And they'd pound it until nobody wanted to see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I remember. So... There was um, a summer or two. I can't even remember what it was. Like you and I are old enough to remember when a movie would be in the theater for a year. year
1: oh a half. yeah, yeah. I'd say held over in the uh, in the newspaper. That happened with like I remember with Return of the Jedi. I would say held over. Yeah. You know.
0: And there was um, after my parents split up, me and my dad would go to the movies every Friday, and there was like a year where it was either one or some combination of Clash of the Titans, oh yeah. swamp, swamp Thing. Conan the Barbarian.
1: Oh, yeah, totally.
0: I could not be. I, Conan the Barbarian is still one of those movies I could put on and just let play all day. Yeah,
1: that is a magical film.
0: I, yeah, there is a. I, I realize it's not very much like the Robert Howard novels um, or novellas. Yeah. There is something fantastic about a movie that only has eight lines of spoken dialogue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I adore that movie.
0: Yeah, and the theme of the movie, you know, and I—I I I think I was in my twenties before it dawned on me that the whole movie is about leaving something laying around that comes back and kills you in the end. Oh, the sword, oh, yeah. Conan himself. You know, the, the sword of the giants left on the battlefield, so humans discover steel. Right. Conan is the steel of the movie, and I it was in my twenties before I one day went, "Oh, now I
1: get it." Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Totally. Yeah.
0: Is that- <laughs> That, to me, is just one of those movies I could just... That, Excalibur, and... Oh, um, yeah. Oh, God, there was another one. That I just I used to be able to just watch them. Even if I didn't watch them, I used to leave them. Pl- oh,
1: Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon's a great one, yeah. Yep. Um, Flash Gordon and Conan the Barbarian were two movies I did not see until really late in the game. Um, I never saw him in my youth, and so I saw him later, like actually in my twenties. I, d- I did not see Conan the Barbar- Barbarian until I was like in college, um, which I consider a lot of wasted time. But uh, it was really fantastic, fantastic when I finally did see it.
0: A whole new world must have opened up. To it you that really
1: day. did. I was like, "What? What have I been doing this whole time? That was not watching
0: Conan the Barbarian for God's sake!" God, uh, I love that movie. That's fantastic. Absolutely. So, Flash, Flash Gordon. Yes, that was one of the other movies on your list as well. So I just discovered that here in Modesto, which is George Lucas's hometown in California, um, some small group has just formed a 501c3 Comic Con for July. Sam J. Jones is going. Oh, out.
1: nice! So cool.
0: So I've already started hitting him on Twitter, trying to get an interview. Nothing's happened yet. Oh. But, uh, if anybody out there knows Sam J. Jones, yeah, I
1: hope you get him. That'd be yeah. great.
0: Yeah, I'd be totally <laughs> stoked because I actually have a a copy of the Queen album framed hanging on the entryway to my home. Nice.
1: I bought, like, the super special edition with the little artwork bits that came in the DVD case. Oh, the
0: Alex Ross one. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I can't find any place to put those, but I just have them, like, just to take out and look at with reverence every once in a while. And then I just recently bought, I'm redecorating my office, to reflect all of my trash movie taste. So I have, uh, have, uh, Gordon I have Beastmaster I have Wizards I have Star Crash uh, Alejandro Hodorowski's Holy Mountain and then oh, yeah. and, uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker which I guess technically it's not really a trash movie but it's in sort of the same sort of cult wheelhouse and I think there's probably one other one that I'm forgetting so it's going to be it's going to reflect my movie tastes in a big way yeah. in the office that's
0: kind of awesome yeah. I still haven't seen Star Crash I've still never seen that
1: well, it's free on YouTube, as I keep telling That's people. Gonna, I right. bought the I bought the disc because I love it so much. But
0: yeah, no, I'm going to have to because you know with with my background and it... look, I know what Hawk you know <laughs> <player>. I, <laughs> right. Star Crash, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I, I love Star Crash because it is so unabashedly like enthusiastic and just does it just doesn't hold back in any way. Um, I mean, it, obviously. It looks like it was made for a buck fifty. Uh, you know, the special effects, I want, I don't want to say they're terrible, but I mean, they're obviously made on quite a budget. Um, oh, sure. You know, a, a, a quite a small budget, but, um, there's so many things that I just love about it. I mean, the big colorful space that they have, like all of the stars are purple and pink and yellow. Um, and all of the spaceships are huge and gaudy and, uh, the, the characters are just all just delightfully weird i mean there's like the robot that speaks with a texan accent and talks about how nervous he is about everything and um it's just it's just a ride i just i just love it because it has no sense of restraint and that's what i appreciate about it
0: well that was a um that was italian made right yes
1: it was yeah
0: and you got to remember, before Italy joined uh, joined the eurozone, the the lira was not worth a lot. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> you know, be six hundred billion lira, so like eight dollars and fourteen right, cents. Exactly, right, exactly. Yes. But um, yeah, that is one that I don't know how that one miss me, but it always did. So it definitely sounds to me like you and I grew up during the same time period with the same pop culture stuff in front of us. What do you think you found the most informative to your own storytelling or taste? I mean, is there a a particular novel or a particular movie that really you think you know formed your uh, storytelling abilities or interest in uh, telling a story. Well, it
1: would be tough to narrow that down to one oh, thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, in terms, uh, I mean, in terms of like my my childhood and what got me into fantasy and sci fi, it's a pretty predictable story. It would have to be Star Wars um, because you know I saw the saw first Star Wars in the theater when I was like eight. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was that was huge for me. And uh I I recently saw the I won't go into this too far, but I recently saw the uh the documentary Plastic Galaxy.
0: That was a fantastic
1: Yeah, and I really loved and agreed with what they said about how, you know, in in that in that decade you didn't have the ability to just sit down and watch a movie on demand over and over again wherever you wanted. You saw it maybe a few t- once, maybe a few times in the theater, and then that was it. And so the the role that Star Wars toys played in a lot of these kids' lives was being able to engage with and sort of dwell in that universe without seeing the movie again and again, um, which was totally me as a kid. I mean, I had a I had a ton of Star Wars toys. Um, and I think that was where I first started getting into storytelling was – because I actually had a lot of those toys. I had I had them for a really long time before I ever saw the movie, um, which was kind of fun and weird because I, I started making up my own narrative about the characters before I knew what any of the characters were or what they
0: did. Oh, well, you know what? I actually I, – now, I was four when Star Wars came okay. out. Um, and I actually remember having the toys before I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember at four years old thinking it was so weird that we knew we hadn't seen the movie, but we knew who each of these characters was already. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, they yeah. they definitely had this 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 look to them that obviously gave them a sort of a role. But like when I was when I was a kid, like before I saw the movie, I think uh, Hammerhead was in charge of everything, mm-hmm. and Darth Vader was his like idiot lackey who just like you know he was an, his enforcer, his leg breaker who would go around and you know do do all of his dirty work.
0: That would be a very different... Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think Greedo was like the sort of like the Peter Lorre, you know, in Casablanca of Star Wars who would just kind of wheedle and make deals and stuff. Um, And I think Luke ended up being really inconsequential in my universe because he wasn't an alien. I thought aliens were cool, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But anyway, so that was the big one growing up. And then I I would say in terms of books... um, there's an author who doesn't get enough love, in my opinion. Uh, his name's A.A. Atanasio. He wrote a book in the 80s called Radix, which I believe won a Hugo. And I, I think it won a Hugo and a Nebula. I, someone would have to fact-check that because I don't remember. But it is, uh, it is probably the most formative book uh, in my life. I read that many, many, many times. Um, and when everybody, whenever anyone asks me, you know, what's the book that made you want to be a writer – that's that's the one. Um, there are some other ones. I think a lot of uh, Stephen King's early stuff made me want to be a writer because he made it look so easy. Um, you know, he has that really conversational style. It just makes it seem so effortless. Um, but uh, but Atanasio's Radix and all of his follow up stuff uh, in Other Worlds and Last Legends of Earth and uh, Wyvern. Those are the books that really. Uh, influenced me the most.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, one of the other things I was going to ask you about, and it was going into Hawk the Slayer. Mm -hmm. Did you you play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid? Oh, my, yes. Okay, because I had an older cousin who, like, he had the stuff, we really didn't know how to play it. And I remember we saw Hawk the Slayer, it was late Saturday night, on, like, Channel 2, which was like our Bay Area channel. (laughs) Almost get if you had an antenna, you know. And then you're, like, watching and going, well, wait a minute here. They got, they got Cyclopses and Halflings. <laughs> you're like, this is like Dungeons & Dragons of the movie. Yes. I think there was something, because when you and I were young, you know, like you were saying about the action figures and Dungeons and & Dragons, you had to use your imagination a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. you had to, because there wasn't video games that spelled it all out for you and laid it on the screen. Yeah,
1: no. Um, and you know, with, for me, uh, cause yeah, I, I, uh, my mom bought me, uh, the D and D blue box for a dollar at a garage sale somewhere in the early eighties, which she probably still regrets, I think. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but, uh, yeah, like at that time, I think it was like the blue box with the, it had the cardboard chits in it instead of the dice, um and I had the little blue rule book and I think a copy of Keep on the Borderlands in it. Um yeah. and that was it. I never really had the budget for miniatures or maps or anything like that. So it all you know when I was playing with my friends, it all took place in our heads. Oh sure. You know it wasn't.
0: Well I had I had the red box set like the. Oh yeah 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 yeah. And um you know obviously for a young a young child it's a lot to get your head around. Mm-hmm. So oh yeah really.
1: yeah i played that really wrong when i first started i mean i don't i don't mean in the sense that i played it my own way and other people thought it was wrong i mean i like i thought making up a character meant you had to draw a picture of your character with every piece of equipment you bought
0: Uh, daniel i'm pretty sure demonstrated
1: i I tried it's really difficult when you load up your guy with tons of stuff
0: yeah well see i was i I was never that into playing them Mm -hmm. but i did like to illustrate stuff for it and um I've always wanted to make a superhero pen-and-paper role-playing game just so I could illustrate it.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. That'd be fantastic.
0: <clears throat> I, I probably, since the late 80s, started one 250000
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I'm, a, I'm a big role-playing geek. I have a big shelf of, of games, and I've played a lot of them over the years, and I've tried to design a few. Um, as, I'm, not a, I'm not a game designer, at all, I have found I kind of I'm very happy playing with other people's systems, yeah. other people's it's systems and my own my own game worlds. So that's where my, that's my yeah. sweet
0: spot. Well, my little brother just gave me background Easter. He gave me the uh, box set of the Fossa Star Trek. World. Oh yeah, it's it still got a lot of the little cardboard counters and things in it. too.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. Didn't that have like the uh, Was it the one that had the the really sophisticated uh, starship combat and all that?
0: Yeah, well, it's not... Okay, so they had a separate game that was just Starship Combat. Oh, okay. Uh, that was part of... Oh, I'm going to show my ignorance a little bit. Um, That's okay. Starfleet Universe or something was the... Uh, Armadillo Games, I believe, is the company that owns it. And it's they have games that are literally just Starship Combat. Okay. Now, this has Starship Combat rules that are quite complex, but nothing compared to the other because I, I tried to play that one with a friend of mine once and it was like five hours. <laughs> I'm like so can I shoot my photon torpedo now or do I still have to wait?
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I had a friend who had those. We never we never played it. I think the first <coughs> pardon me, I mm-hmm. think the first uh, the first Star Trek role-playing game I ever played was from Decipher which was like either, I think it was like the early 2000s um, that was the first one I ever played. I never got to play any of the old school ones. There's a lot of old school games that I missed, but I
0: oh sure you know I had
1: a lot of I had a lot of fondness for those, like all the Fossa stuff. Uh, BattleTech was one that I was briefly into, not that into it because it was really expensive to get into, but uh, but I really loved the idea.
0: Yeah, the concept behind mm-hmm. it was enough to
1: grab your imagination and run away. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so you are also a uh, video game guy, yes?
1: To some degree, yeah. I was really into video games in college, uh, somewhat to the detriment of my grades. Um, and since then, I've kind of—I'm like about a generation behind now with the consoles. Oh, okay. um, I don't play games on PC anymore because it gets in the way of work. Um, Right. you know I just
0: because what what you need on your computer is one more
1: exactly it. yeah no it's I've got plenty going on without without video games that was a deliberate choice on my part like I switched to Linux I can't play really play games for, I mean I, you can but I choose not to um, right. it raises the bar we'll just say that to play games on Linux
0: right. um, you really have to go out of your yeah you have it. to
1: work at it <laughs> there's, there's a time investment involved um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah so my, my my PC is just for writing and know research and work um i haven't i have an xbox i have a 360 which is primarily what i use now Um, and i have a handful of games for it that's what i play now back in the day i was a huge pc gamer i stopped when i left college pretty much which was 2000 or around 2000 so i was a huge pc gamer from like i don't know 96 to 2002 somewhere in there so Mm -hmm. since then i'm a little behind uh Oh, World of Warcraft is the exception of that. Like I played that. Wow. I played that until probably 2005, I guess. Um, that yeah. was probably where I really fell out of the market. Um, aside from like Skyrim, and uh, I recently played GTA V. Um, but I don't really care about military shooters, and that seems to be what almost the entire market is now. So, you know.
0: Yeah, that is a big part of it. Um... The one I'm waiting for, now I did buy a PS4 so I could get the new Batman game. Okay. I, love, I love the Arkham series. Oh, yeah, I
1: played, I played the first one of that, and that was really fun.
0: Yeah, that, that's outstanding. But um, So I got the PS4 to get the new one, and you spend half the game almost driving. I'm an outside salesman in my room. Right. I already spend all my time driving, so it, it just didn't click for me. Um, and then I don't play a lot of online games. So I, when I got the new Star Wars Battlefront, mm-hmm. it's all online. So I was real disappointed with that. Yeah. But one coming up that I'm really looking forward to, the Friday the 13th game coming out. Oh, okay. I haven't heard about so, it. Well, what it is is so everybody goes into a lobby, and then they put together the group that's going to play. One of the players is Jason. Everybody else is a camp counselor. Jason can, like, teleport across, like, the, the map and kill people, and basically he's, like, a one-shot kill. The counselors camp- have to, like, repair a car or get a phone working.
1: Oh. Until- oh. Is, it, is, like, the subtitle, like, Dead by Daylight or something like that?
0: Um,
1: or is that a different game?
0: I think that's a different game, okay. but I bet you the concept is is the same. Okay. And that's the one, like, now I'm just, like, biting my nails, because I the other thing I love besides sci-fi and fantasy... Horror films. I love slash. Oh, days. sure, yeah.
1: No, that does sound amazing. Um, yeah, I was. I watched a gameplay video of Dead by Daylight, and I was like, "Well, this probably really isn't for me," but it looks really fun. I like, I like any kind of game where you have a bunch of players cooperating against some kind of you know implacable yeah. foe or obstacle. I really like. Um, yes, horror films. I like. I my taste in horror films tends. Heavily toward, uh, like the supernatural. I really like, um, like gothic horror movies, uh, ghost stories, stuff like that. Oh, sure. Um, you know, The Exorcist, The Omen, um, Suspiria, um, what else? Um, jeez. Uh, let's see, what else? Like The Changeling, the old George C. Scott movie. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a ton of others I'm just blanking on now, but I have a ton of them.
0: It was, yeah, yeah, and that was like, Salem's Lot's the first movie I remembered loving as a kid, and that was a made-for-TV oh,
1: movie. Oh, yeah. That was, that has a creepy atmosphere to it for a TV movie.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They could just the, the little kid outside the window.
1: Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh man, like as like that just really taps into kind of like one of those childhood fears of something being outside your window. At least for me, that was like a that was like a big deal when I was a kid. I always thought.
0: Oh was yeah. Something. No, I I, <clears throat> I saw that movie when I was a little little kid, and that scene still stands out to me. Totally. I mean, still to this day, you know. We're talking almost forty years. Later, like, <laughs> you know, still talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Actually, in in this month, towards the end of the month, I've got a uh, a horror film editor coming on. Oh, so I can't. I don't have his list of, of course, because I'm talking about. It, I don't have a list. Of in
1: course, yes. Uh,
0: yeah, so that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I love. You know what? I, I guess I'm just kind of a. Uh, media nerd in general, because I love everything from slasher flicks to superheroes. Yeah,
1: likewise. I mean, I have a huge shelf of DVDs, you know, cult movies and superhero movies and uh, sci-fi and stuff, and my bookshelf is, is enormous. It's it's groaning with the weight of the books on it. So.
0: Oh, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> hey, so um, I'm going to talk about Conan for a minute, because I know you're okay. a Robert Howard fan. Yes. Uh, why do you think... They have so much trouble getting that character onto film because that should be one that should translate fairly easily. Um, I know it's a big question. yeah, it is
1: it is. Um, because I think there's a disconnect, and i'm i'm coming I'm coming at this from. I'm like staring at my complete collection of Conan hardbacks as I'm as I'm saying this. Um, I'm coming at this from sort of a, a, a I'm a much bigger fan of the stories than of uh than of any of the media that's been made around the stories. Oh, also I want to mention um another really formative piece of media from my youth was uh Savage sort of Conan which is the black and yes. the black and white uh, comic. did,
0: did Roy Thomas work on those
1: Yeah, I think Roy Thomas did do some of the covers yeah. and like you have like Ernie Chan and Gary Quappies who's my personal favorite um, and a bunch of other great artists um, and they could do what you couldn't do you know in other comics I mean they just I mean you know not for nothing they had you know lots of graphic violence and I mean no nudity but uh, you know just Kind of really hitting the sweet spot for a
0: well, they they stopped just shy of nudity.
1: Yeah, they tried yeah. to get away with it as much as they could, obviously.
0: Well, and that's that's see, that's why I always thought Conan translated so well to a visual medium, and that's and I love the first Conan movie, so I'm leaving that. Yeah, no, movie. no, no.
1: I mean, yeah, we could have a debate about whether or not the first Conan movie is lives up to the spirit of Howard or not. I don't,
0: yeah should sure. it should it be called Conan or something else? Maybe yeah, that's I don't different- know.
1: Um, but I think that there is, I mean, and I say this utterly without irony. I think there's sort of a a poetry and a beauty to a lot of those Conan stories like, um, you know, Robert E. Howard's, uh, poem Samaria, which I really love. Um, it has this really somber brooding beauty to it. And it's not, it's not trashy. It's not garish. It's not wahoo. Um, And so much of the media uh that has that has come afterward has tried to shove Conan into this kind of like, you know, blood and guts sort of idea, which I don't really think is at the core of the stories.
0: Well, and I don't think it's at the core of the character. When you read Howard's version or even Robert Jordan's version of Conan, Mm -hmm. very pensive. Yeah. Very very deep in thought and yeah, I mean he's quiet in his books, but usually because he's thinking. When he comes across quiet in the movies or that shitty TV show or cartoon they yeah. did, it's because he's a barbarian and, and kind of short on faculties. And I think they kind of miss the heart of the character. I think they totally do, and I think even even visually they've kind. of... I mean, that was
1: if I was going to make one objection to the Conan movie, um, which I otherwise love, just to reiterate that um, is that I don't I don't think. I don't think uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a good fit. I mean, not even not just as an actor, but just I don't. I, I never really saw Conan as this incredibly huge, beefy guy. When when you see uh, Howard write about him, they always talk about how he's got like the aspect of like a of like a panther or a jungle cat. He's, a jungle cat. Yes, yeah, he's lean. He's muscled. He's fast. And they talk about him, you know, being a thief. Like he's not this huge beefcake wall of muscle that just hits everything in his path. Um, but that's the image that got pushed, and c- as as you were just saying, you know, you kind of have this dumb barbarian uh, stereotype that gets pushed. But that's not who he was either. I mean, when they, there's that great line which I cannot recite from memory, but they uh, when he's talking to some some noble or, or or man from the city, and he said, you know, civilization is the is the ability to to insult a man to his face and not get your head cut off, you mm-hmm. know. Um, it was just this, reflected this sort of disdain, I think, that that uh, Howard himself seemed to have for civilization, or a sort of disconnect that he had from civilization. You know, living by himself way out in Texas. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I think yeah. that that sense of loneliness, that sense of isolation.
0: Well, I was going to say, I'm going to get a little crass here. Robert Howard committed suicide, right? Yeah, that, he did. okay, yeah. I, I wanted to make sure I was thinking of the right. He guy. did,
1: yes. Um, you know, which. Yeah, and and so I think I think that sense of that sense of loneliness and isolation and that sort of somberness gets lost um, very easily because it doesn't translate well. It doesn't meet our expectations of what we've kind of been sold as the the barbarian archetype. Like the barbarian's supposed to be big and dumb and hit things and you know blood and boobs and decapitations and stuff like that and and those things are all fine for you know a trashy 80s movie or whatever you know kind of okay. you want but i don't they're not really so much in in howard's stories at all um and i and nobody's ever really gotten past that nobody's ever really wanted to do a uh a really sort of Somber, pensive, uh, barbarian movie. I don't think. I think that's probably a very tough sell for anybody to try to do. Oh, um, probably, you know. And I mean, even with the, the the 2011 Conan, which I I saw in the theater, and oh. yeah, just detested the hell out of that. I mean, they they uh, there are some things that I felt they tried to get right, but they tried to shove it into this. This Joseph Campbell thing of of you know, the hero's journey and he goes on this epic quest and the villain's trying to destroy the world and Conan's trying to save and it's like, No, none, none of this none of this is in the spirit of, of what the character was about, you
0: know. Yeah. Well, the thing and I I'm, I'm gonna have some it's been a few years since I've read. I've got a couple collections of short stories. Sure. Queen of Queen of the Black Coast is the one oh, where yeah. Where his lover dies, and then he fights the winged ape at the end. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is the one I'm thinking of. There's actually a scene in that where he's getting ready to fight, and he goes and he sits down and decides to think about how he's going to fight the monster for an hour. Yeah. They would never do... Well, they kind of do that in the original Conan. They would never do that in a modern... No,
1: they'd never bother now.
0: Yeah, because in in the original Conan, they do show right before uh, he fights of Doom's horde, they do show him sit down and kind of contemplate what's going to happen. Yeah. You'd never see that. Anymore, yeah, because you can't have a thinking a thinking fighter anymore, I guess. Yeah, that's
1: that's why I mean because I've had that that discussion with people about whether or not the the Milius movie it fits the spirit of of the Howard stories and people want to say no and I'm going to say but okay, but it does better than anything else out there because it acknowledges those kind of those exact kind of moments that you're talking about it you know right. it has those those pensive moments where you know he, he kind of gets in Crom's face and and you know talks about his about his fate and he thinks about what he's going to do like there's so many other you know pieces of media out there that don't don't even go that far they don't even bother Yeah. Um, you know it took a stab at it which I really liked
0: yeah well it gave a shot like I mean it gets his origin long, but it yeah. does it in such a fantastic uh, yeah, way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was
1: totally willing to forgive that just because, like, the Wheel of Pain is such an amazing execution of an origin story. You know, it's yeah. like you have your your stereotypical village wiping outing, and I was like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, but then, like, you just, the Wheel of Pain, you just have, like, you have this whole childhood go by in one scene.
0: yeah. There's there's just an operatic yeah. hope trick to that whole movie. And it also has one of my favorite villain speeches of all time and Fulsa Doom gets to do it in there where he's like you kill my people, you kill my oh, family. Yeah. He's like, uh, for me that was a Thursday. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. When I was young I wiped out several villages, <laughs> you know. <laughs> just that that kind of like, Oh yeah, I remember being young. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so here's something which I did not know until recently. Um, I was listening to, and this seems really oblique at first, but I promise it's going somewhere. I was listening to this, uh, concept album by Bill Laswell. It's called, uh, Hashashim The End of Law. And it's about the, uh, the assassins. Mm-hmm. And it's a bunch of spoken word stuff that is from various historical documents and, uh, like, uh, historical anecdotes and, uh, journals and poetry and stuff and it has um uh, uh what's his name william burroughs and iggy pop and all of these other all these other artists doing these spoken word bits and one of them talks about uh hasani saba you know the, the the man on the mountain who ran the assassins who would uh Who, who had a a group, a cadre of assassins of people who were so devoted to them that they would, at his word, throw themselves off of, off of the roof or off of the mountaintop and kill themselves on his command. Mm -hmm. And I realized that Thulsa Doom is totally Hassan Isaba. They, they, like, Milius totally took a bunch of notes about Hassan Isaba and, and, and crammed it into, into Thulsa Doom, which I had not realized until I listened to that album.
0: Well, there's a lot of great little be. De- well, first off, there's a Genghis Khan quote given by a guy who looks like a Mongol. Mm-hmm. You know, pressure your enemies, see them driven before you. Right, right. That's in there. Um, but one of the there's like these little details that I didn't even consider. Well, Fulsa Doom is supposed to be thousands of years old at this point. Okay, notice that he's a black man with straight black hair and blue eyes. Right, right. He is a, a, from somewhere where that genetic strain existed, where, you know, dark skin, black hair, blue eyes, where people had it, then the rest of his race went extinct. You know, race, I'm using that in the most sure manner. But the rest of his people went extinct, and so he's the one left with those traits wandering around thousands of years later. Yeah, you know, little details yeah. that come through, that are just there, but you don't notice.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, wasn't uh, wasn't Falsa Doom originally a Call the Conqueror villain?
0: Yes, he was. He was yeah. like a He Man looking, uh, skeletor looking. <laughs> yeah. You know. um, well, and, you know, the rumor is, of course, that He Man was originally supposed to be a Conan the Barbarian toy line. Right. Um, and so the Falsa Doom becoming Skeletor and the Snake Man, which was, Falsa Doom and the Snake Man are much more coal, uh, enemies Yeah, like the Conan. Serpent
1: People. Yeah.
0: But all those things were supposed to be through there. Well, you know, um, Oh, what the heck is his name? Uh, JFK. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who, uh, Oliver Stone actually did one of the first writes of Conan. Yes,
1: Conan. I remember. Yeah, and it had, like, mutants in it and... Uh...
0: Fly fly people and King Kong. <laughs> <Cop
1: poster. laughs> <laughs> yeah. Didn't he, like, write it on a cocaine bender or something like that? Oh, I, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> most,
0: most good movies from the 70s and 80s involve some cocaine at some point. Right, remember, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's. It, I don't want to make light of drug use or drug problems, but I'd have to throw away a lot of my record collection. If I could. <laughs> no,
1: yeah, I, uh, I just I seem to recall somebody saying that at some point. Maybe it was in the, one of the special features of the Conan movie. Is Oliver Stone saying he was just like just coked out of his mind and wrote the Conan draft in a weekend or something like that?
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the thing. The other thing about Conan is it exists in this weird nether time. Yeah. Before prehistory. But after some kind of cataclysm, uh, and there are definitely hints that there was a advanced society before Conan's time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not necessarily like they come out and say it, but there could have well, been, you know. yeah, because... Yeah. I guess they do, because Atlantis... was. Yeah, it,
1: that's exactly it. what I was going to say, like the Atlantean sword, which incidentally I have a replica of in my office of the Atlantean sword Thanks. from uh, from when he goes into the into the... Cave. Yeah, in the Giant's Cave, because yeah, um, I just love that so much. But, um, but yeah, as you were saying, yeah, obviously there's some sort of cataclysm, in Atlantis. I was going to say like maybe uh, maybe Milius was tossing around because since Falsa Doom was a was a villain, maybe they there were, Milius was decided that Falsa Doom was Atlantean. Who knows?
0: Could be, could be. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in there though. I love that movie. Yeah.
1: Did you ever listen to the uh, the commentary, like the Milius and Schwarzenegger commentary?
0: You know what I? I don't know if I did because it would seem to me if I had, I would remember it, and it's not jumping out of me.
1: I you owe it to yourself. I think if you haven't to listen to it because it is it is not only informative, it is really hilarious. Just okay. to listen to those two guys talk because um, Milius is 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 really just he's really passionate and he's really erudite, um, and and Schwarzenegger just kind of acts the fool the whole time, which works for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there's like the part where the, uh, my favorite part, just because it's so over the top is the, uh, <clears throat> from the commentary is where, uh, he, Conan is going through his, his tutelage and his, um, his master is like telling him, showing him how to fight and the one guy sneers at him and then the guy turns around and crotch kicks him. Yes. Schwarzenegger just bellows laughter for like the next five minutes. He's just like, he's like the funniest thing he has ever seen. <laughs> You know, and Millie's just trying to, like, make all these comments about what he was doing, and he just can't get past, like, Schwarzenegger screaming about the guy getting kicked in the crotch.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Dick jokes are funny. Yeah, I no, guess that's yeah. all I, no. have to say. I yeah. mean, he put
1: it in the movies, so.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you know, back, God, almost 20 years ago now, apparently the wrestler Triple H was going to play Conan, huh. and that deal fell apart. I would have, I actually would have liked to have seen that.
1: Yeah, that would have been interesting.
0: Yeah, um, but apparently now there's some talk about doing a King Conan movie with oh yeah retired, retired Governor Arnold. Yeah,
1: I heard about that, and I'm I don't know how to feel about it.
0: <laughs> you know, there's there's this weird thing we've got going on now where we've got these weird combination remake sequel things. Yeah, uh, Star Wars was kind of like one. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch. I've got a list of all the ones. I'm like, well, it's a little bit like a remake and a little bit like a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, the new uh evil dead series was kind of like that oh
1: yeah like that was a really curious one I, I saw yeah. that recently it's like we'll take evil dead and we'll just take all the humor out of it which is such a weird decision I
0: mean sorry go ahead you were it no 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 that's that cause, well that's kind of the thing it's like I, there is a there is a way you could do that you know the the king Conan movie yeah um and what was there's I know I even read one of those stories that was supposed to be the last one with Conan as an old man yeah that I think you know, I think it was an assassination attempt or something. That
1: was, oh yeah, uh, sword in the phoenix or something like that. That's,
0: That's it. it. That's the one. Yeah, and um, that would be kind of interesting to see. There is a way to do it, um, but I don't know if Schwarzenegger is any more the man to do it. Yeah, you know what I mean.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, for for one thing, I just. Two things about that, just from from my perspective, is one, I feel like in a way you kind of end up getting hemmed in by your own image. Um, mm-hmm. Like I watched uh, one afternoon when they were all on Netflix. I watched the Expendables movie movies, all three of them. Oh wow! Um, and I thought one of them was pretty all right, um, and the other two I have no memory of whatsoever. They kind of all blended together, which is my mistake, just watching them all in in a row. Right, but it, but. The people, like, all the characters... It was great to see all these action heroes again, but they weren't really playing characters. They were just kind of playing themselves. I mean, they might as well just been turning and winking to the camera the whole time. And they were just kind of like... I mean, they're even less so characters than they had been in their other movies. I mean, you know, in every movie, Schwarzenegger kind of plays Schwarzenegger. That's just sort of who he is. But but yeah. in those movies, it was so self-referential that it just, everything was lost. And what I'd be afraid of is that they do that and it would just be Schwarzenegger doing this weird sort of caricature <laughs> and which I would just
0: hate to see. Um, well, that's what I would be afraid of is that you wouldn't get, Schwarzenegger playing Conan you would get Schwarzenegger playing Schwarzenegger playing
1: Exactly yeah and especially if I mean cuz I don't know if Milius would do it or would be able to do it I mean cuz he had a you know he had a stroke and everything and that mm-hmm. you know and he's kind of on the outs with Hollywood and I don't know if they'd get him back or if he'd want to come back or if he could and that's right. m- you know I'd most want that I want I'd want him to do it if anybody was going to do it but it just doesn't seem hugely possible to me yeah. um, you know so so, I don't know. I'm, I'm not super enthusiastic about the idea. I mean, I'm not against it, but I, I just would have to wait and see. After the 2011 Conan, it's going to take a lot for me to get into a Conan movie again.
0: Well, you because know, that came out, and then they also came out with a, uh, an MMO at the same time. Oh, yeah. Apparently it was, was quite terrible. And they came out with a PS3 game at the same time that was basically just a God of War clone that sucked. Right. And it's, you know, for me, it's like you've got this great property invest some money in it and do something with it yeah it's there you know look I'm, I'm begging you to take my money just make it worth my while
1: i know exactly yeah but i mean i just i don't know it, it the, the depressing thing is that i feel like the way that howard wrote the story is the kind of the spirit that he wrote him in just doesn't seem to be a winner uh in yeah. a modern market which is a problem i think a lot of pulp era stories have i mean that's the kind of uh the thing with star wars now um you know, uh, I don't want to get into a whole tangent about Star Wars and like the prequels, but I think looking at like the original Star Wars, right? The, the, he wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie, but you yeah. know, Delorente, if I recall correctly, owned the rights, and he was like, "No, we're gonna we're gonna do it." And I was like, "So George Lucas was like, okay, I'll go make my own Flash Gordon movie, and I will just you know file all the serial numbers off, and we'll do I'll do my own thing." Yeah, and so he did, and it was kind of this combination of classic. Flash Gordon, Rocky Jones, Space Ranger, Pulp Serial Antics with this kind of modern lived in universe and more of a more of a modern sensibility. Kind of a seventies sensibility. I think I read somewhere that it was like it was like this juxtaposition of pulp serial antics and seventies car culture, like a la American graffiti, you know? Oh, yeah. Because like the Millennium Falcon's a jalopy, and he's got his land speeder. It's like it's it's 70s car culture. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and that all really worked for people. Um, and then you get the prequels, and aside from whatever you know legitimate beefs people might have with the prequels, I think one of the things that Lucas tried to do with those movies was really go back to the roots of Pulp Adventure. He really tried to make a big, talky, pulp story. Um, which I think is what he wanted to do in the first place because if you look at the old screenplays with you know, like the pre production screenplays, they've got dozens of characters, they're super talky, it's really expository, um and it's got that kind of that clunky feel that all of those old Flash Gordon serials and like the Rocky Jones serials and all they all had that. It was like ninety percent talking about what they were gonna do and about ten percent doing it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um and that didn't work for a lot of people obviously. Um, And now what Disney's done, in my opinion, is they have completely stripped out almost entirely what little remained of like the pulp era space opera notes. They've kept the iconography of star Wars, but it's, it's just an action movie in, in a modern vein now,
0: which is not, which is,
1: I don't think is a bad thing.
0: I'm actually i'm gonna i'm gonna put two two points on that same point. I guess okay. is what I'm gonna do. Uh, yeah, they've absolutely they went and made Star Wars as a modern action movie. I think the proof in the pudding is going to be in Rogue One and Number Eight. If they both feel like a retread of the same shit, then we know what we're getting. <laughs> right. Um, but you want to see how? Okay, so. What would you consider to be the birth of the modern um, planetary romance story? For me, it's John Carter of Mars. Yeah,
1: that's what I would have said, too.
0: Did you see the most recent movie that Disney made? I did. What a shit <laughs> Yeah. The, the, the problem uh, you run into now is all these things that were created by uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah. have been in every Star Wars movie, yeah. have been in two or three Star Trek movies. So things that were brand new when they were done by, you know, John Carter are retread so heavily yeah. now that when you put it into the movie with its original context, there's no way to see it as something new. Yeah, And that's a big part of the problem you run into.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember, I read uh, a book, I can't remember the title now, but it was, it was basically a what happened book talking about the John Carter movie. And, uh, the guy wrote it as kind of a, you know, kind of a post-mortem on the movie after it failed and turned it out. And, and before they turned out the movie, I I remember this quote, one of the, one of the movie executives was like, we can't do this. George Lucas took all of it. You know, that's, we can't we can't make this movie. He ruined it for everybody.
0: Yeah. There's, I mean, that's that's just it. There's no way to make John Carter without going. Well, all they did was steal this from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just no way to do it. Well, Dale, you know what? We are uh, out of time. All right, yeah. that went by pretty quick. Yeah, it, it was
1: really enjoyable. I had a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: Well, let's see here. You're working on a, uh, a sequel to Orson right now. So why don't you tell us real quick where people can find you and find your work at? Uh,
1: probably the easiest way to find my stuff is just to go to 9musepress.com. Um, that's uh, just all one word, no dashes. Um because it has a direct link to my first book. You can get it in any format from any one of the stores. You can buy it off Amazon. You can buy it off PNN. Or you can get it directly from us in any format, like when you buy it directly from us. Uh, instantly, uh, I get the biggest cut when you buy it directly from the store, but also you get it in every format, EPUB, MOBI, PDF, so you don't have to worry about any compatibility issues. Um, so that right now is the best place to find my stuff
0: okay and are you on twitter uh,
1: only in an academic sense i don't really i don't really hang out on twitter very much um but i'm i'm surly muse there s-u-r-l-y-m-u-s-e so if you want to yeah if you want to follow me and chat me up i i will respond to people i don't tend to hang out there very much but i uh, i'm always happy to talk to people and meet new people so yeah hit me up and I, of course i have an author page on facebook too so
0: uh, under Daniel Swenson? Yeah. Oh, and, and Swinson, so your family must be must have been Danish at some point. Then, yes,
1: right? they were. Yeah. S-W-E-N-S-E-N.
0: Yep, we were. Because like my mom's family, we've got Anderson, S-E-N. Yep, so
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Got the Danes in. And for those anybody out there who doesn't know, uh, when Denmark was basically conquered by the Nazis and the Nazis told them all the Jews in Denmark had to wear the uh, Star of David, the king and all the uh, mayors in Denmark began to wear the Star of David as well. Wow. So... Lots of lives saved by the Danish kings. And I'm not a big fan of aristocracy, but uh, Christian the Tenth I always uh, take my hat off to. Oh,
1: wow. So Today I learned. That's great. Yep.
0: That's well, a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on. Um, when your next book comes out, please let me know. I'd love to have you on again, or just sometime if you want to come on and talk movies. Let me Sure.
1: Know. I'd love to be back. That'd be great.
0: Yeah. And in the meantime, guys, you can find us at geekishcast.com. we or on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast. And I tweet from at the Geekish Cast and you can email me at Jeremy at Geekish Cast Thank you everybody